0: Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads.
1: So you're interviewing me? I am. Oh, goodness. I thought it was like more of a conversation somehow between the two of us.
2: Well, which is also true. It's Mm -hmm. our hour to do with as we please. I'm ready. This is Death, Sex, and Money.
0: Women pay me to give them pleasure.
2: The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Okay, I'll just, I'll lose my job. And need to talk about more.
1: It's your funeral, sir.
2: I'm tayari Jones, in for Anna Sale Artist Carrie Mae Weems was in her late teens when she got her first camera. It was a gift from a boyfriend. I was,
1: I think, maybe eighteen or, or nineteen years old. And, uh, and he was, you know, he was really an awful person in so many ways. But, he, but but he did give me a tool, and that was my camera that really took me into my life in a very interesting and
2: important way. <laughs> I'm so tickled that you see he's a horrible person in a lot of ways. That was funny. <laughs> oh, he really, really was.
1: You know, he was the kind of person who was, um, you know, um, really, really smart, but really manipulative. And that, to me, is a really dangerous person. And, uh, and so I left him, uh, and uh, he was stunned. He just could not believe that this <laughs> w- woman was leaving him. And so he's, you know, he's been obsessed with me for years because I'm one of the only ones who left. <laughs> ah, the one who got away. <laughs> but he gave me a camera, and he gave me some uh, ideas about what I wanted to do in the world, and for that I'm, I'm deeply grateful. <laughs>
2: ¶¶ Carrie's work has been hugely influential on me, not just as a writer, but as a person. She's a renowned photographer, a performance artist, a MacArthur Fellow, the first Black woman to have a retrospective at the Guggenheim Museum. But if you're not into art, all you need to know is this. Carrie Mae Weems is a singular, trailblazing artist at the top of her game. I had a lot I wanted to know about her, but maybe I should have known that our interview wouldn't be a one-way street. After all, she's someone who's made a career of looking at the world and the people around her and asking questions about them through her work. And sure enough, she had some questions for me about what my life has been like after my novel, An American Marriage, came out last year and became a prize winner and a bestseller. What do you want for yourself now, moving forward? Well, I'm trying to figure that out. That's part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you. Mm. Because, I mean, you know things I don't know. You've seen things I haven't seen. What is there What is there next? Like, I do want to grow as an artist, but I also know that art cannot be your whole life. And so I don't know what I want next. I feel like I worked so long and hard for this moment, and I hadn't really thought about beyond it. But I'm looking at you as a person who's several steps ahead of me, and I'm saying, what's it like up there? I have no
1: idea what that means. (laughs) We'll
2: figure it out. Carrie grew up in Portland, Oregon in the 1950s and 60s. She was one of seven kids, and her love of the arts was evident early on.
1: I knew that I was going to be an artist as a child. I didn't know what kind of artist I was going to be. But I, but I knew that I had sort of a, a very particular kind of impulse very early on that kept me anxious and, um, um, and interested and engaged in the world in a very particular way.
2: Now, your parents divorced when you were eight. Yeah. But it, they, it seems like they were pioneers in this thing that everyone calls co-parenting now. That the the parenting transcended the marriage, because mm. your father lived nearby. That's right. Was this an unusual situation there, or just life?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, my father was very much involved in our our lives, and um, uh, um, my mother and father knew each other almost all their lives. Mm. Um, their family lived across the street from my f- from her family, so there was a there was a deeper bond, I think, in their uh, in their relationship, uh, and uh, that extended until the day my father died. They remained close friends. They remained um, connected. My father was at every holiday with my family, even when my mother remarried. I mean, my father was always a a, a very important part of our lives, and for that, I'm 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 deeply I'm deeply grateful. I remember my mother asking my mother what she felt for my father. Mm. And she said, oh, well, the sun rose and set in your father, right? It rose and set in this man. And, um, and even though we couldn't make it, um, I always wanted you to have a relationship with this man. So I saw them go through their struggle, I saw what that was like, um, but I also saw what it looked like to come out on the other side of that and to be great friends and great comrades and still love one another, but simply knowing that they couldn't make it together.
2: Black family life is the subject of my favorite work of Carrie's, called The Kitchen Table Series. She created it when she was teaching at Hampshire College in the late 1980s. In it, she photographs herself in her own kitchen for a series of images that tries to unpack and then upend what domesticity has traditionally looked like for Black women. At the time, that was something she was thinking about a lot in her own life.
1: You know, I didn't think that I was going to marry Because it wasn't something that I was interested in. I was much more interested in the arts, right? I was much more interested in pursuing that part of myself. I didn't want anything to distract from that. But but I married the right man. I married the right person for me and for my temperament. So we actually work well together.
2: Now, how did you know this was the right person for you? You know, very
1: interestingly, when I met my husband, I met my husband in a dark room.
0: In a dark room or
1: a dark room? A photographic dark room. Oh, well, then was I was was printing. And he walked into the dark room. Somebody said that Jeff Hoon wanted to stop by to meet me. And um, so Jeff knocked on the door. I was in the process of printing, literally. I had him wait for a few moments until I sort of finished knocking out this print that I was working on. And uh, I opened the door, and I looked at him, and I said, Oh, my God, this is going to be my husband. So, and I thought, what a weird thought. You don't want to get married. It was like, it was like, a, it was like a, a subconscious thing. Like, this is going to be your reality. This is, this, you have just met the man that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And I thought, I don't want to spend the rest of my life with him. I have, like, a really fine black boyfriend in, in, <laughs> in Oakland, California, who was so fine. It was like waking up to, like, sunshine in the morning. I mean, this brother was just, like, gorgeous. Right, He had this, like, beautiful beautiful. beautiful face and these sort of high cheekbones, beautiful mouth and these dreadlocks. He was just just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful soul. And so I just could not figure out why my head was telling me this thing about this man that I was going to marry, but it did tell me that.
2: (laughs) Well, like, how old were you
1: when you got married? I was in my 40s. I had just turned 40. I had actually just turned 40. You know, uh, basically, my husband asked me one day if I would marry him. I was working on an exhibition, actually, for the the Getty Museum, and I was in a really contentious um, fight with uh, the institution around a set of works that I wanted to show and why. And uh, so it was a, it was a, a sort of a complicated time. So I was really not thinking about relationships. You know, I was, I remember lying in bed, staring at the ceiling, just sort of mapping out how to approach some ideas around my work and how I was going to deal with all of the legal questions that were coming my way. And, um, and he, I remember he sort of dropped the newspaper and he looked at me and he said, Are you ever going to marry me?
2: And you said,
1: And I looked at him for a really long time. It was like I could see, like, my life sort of spinning out and sort of spread out before me. It was like, hmm. So I said, well, I guess you'll ask me one of these days, and I'll let you know. (laughs) And so maybe two minutes later, he said, well, will you marry me? And I looked at him again for a long time, and then I finally said, um, yes. And he said, when? And I said, whenever you say. And? And he said, right now, today.
2: No, that day.
1: Right now, today. So we were in L.A. Yes. And uh, we got married in Mexico.
2: I'm going to ask a completely superficial question. (laughs) What did
1: you wear? I happened to bring... (laughs) I just happen to have... A fabulous white off silk <laughs> long silk dress in my bag with a very hip, a very hip beige sweater, right? Yes. You know? Because I used to dress up all the time, so I just happened to have this with me, so it was perfect, you know. And we stopped at, you know, we like jumped in a car. We stopped at the the local J C Penney's or Sears and Robux. I'm not really sure which one it was. They're at the, the moment. same thing. They're the same, you know. We picked up like rings for like 19.99 or 99.99 or something, and we. We drove to Mexico and we found the Justice of the Peace and we got married for seventy nine dollars and ninety nine cents. And it was f- Fantastic. Oh. And then we came back across the border from Tijuana and um, the Del Coronado Hotel is right there. So we decided that we would go there for champagne. There was a Sunday, there were a ton of weddings that were going on. And so we just crashed somebody else's wedding party and we drank we drank champagne. We drank them. their champagne.
2: <laughs> 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 I feel like that's some kind of wonderful metaphor for life. Drink someone else's champagne. It was
1: really kind of wonderful. It was a really beautiful wedding day. It was really great. So that's how the the way I sort of came to be, I came to be married. But how is it that you came not to be? Coming up,
2: it's my turn.
1: And what is it about relationships that um, sort of sends you back into yourself and away from the sort of deeper entanglement of living with a partner?
0: Hello everyone, it's Anna, and as of Monday, I am back from maternity leave. It was a really special time to be home with my baby and my toddler and to think about a lot of other things besides work. But it was also really fun to get to dip into the show and hear the incredible conversations that the team put together with our guest host. Like this interview between Tayari and Carrie Mae Weems. Hearing them talk reminds me of how much I enjoyed interviewing Tayari last year. If you want to hear our conversation, text the word Tayari to the number 70101. She has some great tales about her frozen margarita years in Texas which make for great summer listening. I'm excited to be back at work now and I'm spending this week in New York with the team taping a lot of interviews to share with you, starting with something familiar. We began my maternity leave by asking you to send us your stories about going through big transitions at work. And on the next episode, we're going to hear more about those. I was very unexpectedly laid off from my job.
1: I took an eight week break from work because I had open heart surgery.
0: My husband and I left our jobs to travel for a year. Then I had my daughter and decided that I would pursue my dream of being a cheesemonger. <laughs> And I catch up with longtime friend of the show, Uma Kandabolu, mother of comedian Huri Kondabolu. She just retired from her 30-year career in healthcare. And we talked together about the big shifts around work identity that we're both experiencing right now. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there.
2: This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Tayari Jones, in for Anna Sale. Have you been married? I've never been married. Uh Do you want to be? You know, do I want to be married? I always say that I would like to meet someone who would make me want to be married. Uh I've never met anyone that I wanted to marry. Uh A friend of mine said, I've seen the way you behave when you want something, and this is not the way that you behave in pursuit of your relationships. I do think, like you said, that the art is very demanding. It's a very demanding life. Also, I mean, it is, I do think one of the differences between men and women is that as a woman becomes more powerful in her career, in her life, it becomes almost like a, a liability socially in that it becomes—there's uh, an idea of like, well, do you need a man? Can you make a—how will you make a man comfortable— You know, having accomplished so much where a man, as he becomes more accomplished, becomes like a chick magnet. Mm. So that's probably something in the mix for me. I don't know. But it could just be my issue. I don't know. (laughs) But I I think I have a good life. I think that there was a time in my life when I felt guilty for feeling like I have a good life. Mm. I think as a single woman, I don't have children either. Sometimes when my accomplishments are are laid out, people— consume them ironically. Like, you have everything, but you have nothing. And I have found that is not true. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there are, you know, there are intangibles that come along with being partnered. And also, I'm sure my imaginary partner is more awesome than the partner would be in real life. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think my imaginary partner would greatly enhance my life.
1: You know, there, there, there are a couple of things that, you know, that you're saying that strike me. I mean, you know, you, you, you're very, or you, you're you very traditional.
2: Me? Yeah.
1: You're a traditionalist <laughs> in a lot of ways, aren't you? Tell me, you? tell me, tell me. Well, I mean, you know, just in the way in which you're sort of talking about these sort of ideas about sort of relationship and binary relationship. You know, there are many different ways of having a partner. Um Love, of course, is one. You know, intimate love, sexual love is one. Um, traditional marriage is another. Polygamy is another. Um, I'm, I'm actually not, I'm sort not of interested. I'm polygamizing. I've, I've never really been interested, I think, uh, primarily in the binary. Uh, uh, while I'm in um, a heterosexual relationship, uh, and i enjoy my husband and i believe in in loyalty loyalty for me has never been really about whether or not um, one sleeps with somebody else. And I think I felt this way for a very long time, which is one of the reasons that I didn't think that I would necessarily be married. So I really value the other kinds of relationships that I have in my life. I value my, my other men friends, my other women friends. Um, what I get from them, um, in a lot of ways, is just as important as what I get from my husband, you know, from the person that I wake up with every morning. And, you know, I tried to start teasing these ideas out very early um, for myself. The limits of relationships, the limits of parenthood, the limits of, you know, all of these sort of binaries that box us into relationships in ways that start to deny us a sort of rightful sense of uh, the complexity of self.
2: I do think that... Um, I do think that these ideas of relationships certainly box us in, particularly um these kind of gendered notions of relationships. I feel like I feel like I am not so much afraid of marriage in that I'm afraid of being a wife. Mm. Uh-huh. I don't know many models of women having the type of life that I want to have that are also wives, most of the women I admire are are single and the ones who are who are married, they did marry in their forties or later. And so I wonder if it's about those important— especially as artists, those formative years not being being married. But I don't know. I I mean I think that there's something that, that no matter what,
1: that in every relationship, when you enter the relationship that you enter it um, under certain terms, and if you enter the relationship under the wrong terms, it's really difficult to set the terms later, right? and and so um, so that to me has been a very important sort of barometer, you know that you know that if I'm entering a relationship struggling around notions of my sense, my ability to work, then it's not a relationship that I can stay in. I already see the handwriting is on the wall. this will not work. This cannot work.
2: I'm going to turn it back to you because I'm so interested in this one question. You've written about not being paid for your work at the same rate as your male counterparts. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. These things are these things are absolutely real. Um, uh and I'm deeply aware of them. And the thing that I try to do about them is to um is to constantly talk about them in smart ways. Tell me. Why. That are always simply simply always uh making making the point. You're always talking about it. I mean the thing that's really important about working as an artist is that, you know, there 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 are any number of stances that we can take. You can lay the material out in such a way that it brings Millions of people to you, right? Or you can lay the information out in a way that simply it gets buried. Mm. So, in using all of my wiles, how do I sort of bring these ideas constantly forward in the work that I'm making so that it's heard, right?
2: Have you seen have you seen evidence that bringing this issue to light has changed things? Has it changed things for you? It's, um, you
1: know, interestingly enough, miraculously enough, just the other day, um, one of my pieces sold, kitchen table sold, and broke auction records.
2: I saw that. I saw that just about 10 minutes ago.
1: How did it feel? Um, Like we've got a long way to go. Yes, indeed, but I was, I mean... But I marked it, it was noted, it was noted, it was like finally, and I really sort of looked at it that way, like, good, good, this is a good start. Finally, somebody's starting to pay attention. They're paying money, too. A little bit. So I think that these are important things, and not just for me, but for others as well. well but they, but it is starting to change, Right. Whether we're talking about it in terms of like popular culture, what we see on TV, what we see published, what we see on museum walls, all of this is very much part of de- the demographic shifting from, from white to, to black and various shades of brown, right? I mean, this is really sort of what we're up against. And um, uh, these um, huge institutions are having to sort of rethink where they are right, and, 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 and then the market is affected by that and the, the, and the museum is affected by the market so all of those things I think are really deeply connected and it's the push that I think we've all been been trying to make but it's also a part of something that's um, that cannot be denied and that is really sort of systematic and, um, change that's taking place in the country right? but you can only do it with people that are willing to go there with you You can't force them. As they say, you can can take the horse to the water, but you can't make him drink, right? You can only take those people you don't necessarily have to agree on everything, right? But the thing that you can agree on is that you're trying to get closer to your humanness.
2: I have to tell you one more thing. About your own work and what it has meant to me. Um, The Kitchen Table series is as profound to me in my understanding of stories in the home, domestic stories. it It is as profound to me as Beloved. And I have it on my bookshelf face out. And I was there. It was the evening I had. I had a lover. It was, you know, we were in my in my living room, and we were you know, all like hugged up and everything. And I knew this was not the best situation for me. I knew it like in the back of my mind, and I looked over his shoulder and the kitchen table series was there. And the image of you and I like made eye contact. And a voice inside my head said, Carrie may Weems want something better for you." And I knew, I knew the relationship had to end. All the effort and work and traditions in there like just jumped out and just kind of snatched me out of a bad situation. So for that, I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's artist Carrie Mae Weems. Her work is currently on view all over Toronto. She's also one of six artists who helped curate an exhibition at the Guggenheim Museum that's on view now. If you're in Canada or New York, trust me, go, go, go. And by the way, that print from the Kitchen Table series, it's sold for $70,000. You can follow me, Tayari Jones, on Twitter and Instagram at Tayari, and find my most recent novel, An American Marriage, wherever you get your books. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Emily Nadal. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. And I know, there are a lot of podcasts out there, but this is one that I make time for, and you should too. Subscribe to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you're listening right now. And if you don't know where to start, Head on over to deathsexmoney.org slash starter kit where they've collected some of their favorite episodes to get you hooked. I told Carrie that one of the things that matters most to me as a writer is my black women readers. But we're both pleased to know that our work connects with other folks too.
1: In fact, I was walking through the airport this morning with your book, and a little white woman, who was probably about 70, turned to me and she said, Oh, that's a fabulous book. (laughs) Oh, that's a fabulous book. And she said it twice. She She wanted me to know that she had read it, that she had checked it out, and that, you know, she was really happy to see me carrying it and
2: reading it. I'm Tayari Jones, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.